Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. Okay, um, so tonight we're gonna be continuing on in our sermon series on the Gospel of John. As a church, we like to take portions of scripture and, and just go through them sequentially, to go through them in order, and we usually hang out with books of the Bible, and we've been in the book of John for 40 weeks. Um, but I, I don't say this often, maybe often enough, sometimes the way that these texts line up with the actual goings-on of the community is, is uncanny. Uh, you might say that it's divine providence, perhaps, but here we find ourselves in a text that I think really speaks to this moment as we move towards uh, installing Susie as a pastor. This is a text that is of great significance, not only to leaders within the church, but to, as I will make the case tonight, to all followers of Jesus. Just as way of background, we've been marching through this uh, Gospel of John, and over the first 11 or so chapters, the author has really taken uh, his, his time developing all three or so years of Jesus's ministry. He's specifically been looking at sign acts that Jesus has done, certain miracles that he thinks are important, like flagship moments in the life of Jesus, to, to introduce Jesus to, uh, to his audience. And you can see over these first 11 chapters or so, there's, there's all sorts of different stories over a pretty extended period of time with regard to Jesus' ministry. And in the last, uh, the back half of the, the Gospel of John, the timing slows down dramatically. And what you have over 10 or so chapters is really just seven days in the life of Jesus. In fact, you can look at, um, there's one story in John chapter 12 where Jesus is anointed by Mary. She has this perfume that's really expensive. She sees him, she breaks uh, the, the jar so that she can get to this ointment and she anoints his feet. And this is six days before the Passover. And a lot of this is, is set within this time. We have this one story that's six days before, and then it really slows down to the night before Jesus's crucifixion. And we have what is called the farewell discourse in John 13 through 17. This is where we find ourselves this evening. John um, is placing Jesus in a room with his disciples, and they're going through some well-known 
events in the life of Jesus. And also for John, he's allowing Jesus to teach to his disciples and to pray with his disciples. A really rich text, specifically in John chapter 17, that prays for the unity of the church. And in our current climate and context, the prayer for unity is so applicable. But here, it just slows down to we have this one night in Jesus' life, and, and the author devotes four or five chapters to the night before leading towards the death and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus. Another way that you could break this book down, as we saw last week, is uh, what some scholars would call the book of signs in the first 12 chapters. And these are these uh, big miracles in the life of Jesus that the author, again, is saying, in order to know who Jesus is, you must understand these miracles. You must understand these signs. And then you hit the midway point, and everything shifts and focuses on what scholars would call the book of the passion. In other words, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Everything slows down almost to a screeching halt and we focus in over the the last seven days or so of Jesus's life, specifically focusing on the night before his crucifixion and the day that he is crucified because this is the center most point of the book. We've talked about this a couple of times. One scholar named Martin Kaler said that really, when you think about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these books in the Bible that tell the story of Jesus, what they are is passion narratives with extended introductions. The point is this, the point is death and resurrection, but in order for us to understand how important that is, we have to also set it within a certain context. So for Martin Kaler, he would say, these first 12 chapters help us to place a, a plot in the narrative to understand where Jesus is going. Tonight, we're gonna hang out in this upper room, if you will, during the farewell discourse, but before Jesus starts talking, he does something that many of us will uh, remember. Uh, This is the story where Jesus washes the feet of his followers. But before we get there, basically what I wanna do tonight is we're gonna read through this text, uh, and I wanna pull some important points out of it as we read. So this is John chapter 13, beginning in verse one. It says, before the festival of Passover, Jesus knew that his time had come to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them fully. Jesus and his disciples were sharing the evening meal. The devil had already provoked Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew the Father had given everything into his hands and that he had come from God and was returning to God. One scholar, perhaps the most famous New Testament scholar alive today, N.T. Wright, says this of these first three verses in John chapter 13. He says, the first three verses form a detailed introduction both to the foot washing scene and to the whole of the rest of the book. Watch how John, like a brilliant artist, fills in the background with three quick strokes of the brush. Understand each of these, and you'll see not only what the foot washing meant, but also what Jesus' death and resurrection meant. Understand this, uh, the stuff within the first three verses, and you'll understand what is going on. So I don't know if you guys were listening, but there's one point in this passage that may have stuck out to you, and many of you are saying, cool, the bit where it talks about the devil going into Judah. Let's talk about that. No, (laughs) not tonight, okay? There's a lot of mysteries, not only in the book of John, but in these 11 verses or so that we're looking at tonight. This is one of them. There will be a time when we can talk about the devil, but not on Susie's installation, (laughs) okay? 
Now, I do want you to see that some of the themes that N.T. Wright says are important for us to understand the story would be before the festival of Passover. This is John basically giving the background to what is happening all throughout the gospel. John is placing significant moments in Jesus's life to important Jewish festivals. And this is not just a passing comment. These are things that are important for us to understand what Jesus is doing in the moment that he's doing them. For example, in John chapter six, the author says, it's nearly time for Passover, and then launches into this feeding miracle. Perhaps you've heard it. The disciples are there and they're, they're beginning to wander around saying, there's all these people that are here. How, Jesus, how are we going to feed them? And it comes down to this little boy who has five loaves and two fish, and Jesus blesses the meal and breaks the bread and passes it amongst the people. And, and out of this moment of, of uh, sacrifice comes this miracle where everyone is fed and there's baskets left uh, of, of all the leftovers, 12 baskets, in fact, which is highly symbolic, but we'll leave that there for the time being. If you know anything about Passover, Passover has this uh, moment of a shared communal meal together. Passover is also something that commemorates Israel's freedom. At one point in their history, they were under the subjugation of the Pharaoh in Egypt. They were slaves, and they were wanting to be, to be freed from out of that oppression. And when Moses leads the people out of Egypt and across the Red Sea, they go into this moment of, of freedom, even though the people don't quite know what to do with that. In fact, as soon as they get into uh, or, or out of, I should say, Egypt, they start complaining, saying, how are we going to live? Where's the food? How are we gonna be fed? I, Moses, you just led us out here to die. And it's in this moment that God provides manna from heaven. God provides for the people. And when Jesus provides food uh, with the people that are here in, in this moment, he links it to this Passover meal and the manna in the wilderness that God has given to his people. In fact, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. It's not about manna on the ground. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. It's as if the author is saying, Jesus is the Passover. Everything that people are wanting, freedom, life, hope, release from slavery, Jesus is fulfilling. It's not just about the bread that comes every night and people can eat. Jesus says, I am the bread. In another festival, it says, it was almost time for the Jewish festival of booths or the festival of tabernacles. This is like a harvest time festival where people would come and, and be excited about what God has given to them. And there were things that happened in this festival that we may or may not be aware of. One of those things is known as a water drawing ceremony where the priests would leave the temple and go to the pool and fill these uh, fancy pitchers with water, and they would go back and dump them over the altar. One scholar says, central to this festival of booths was the famous water drawing ceremony, which included the procession from the Pool of Siloam to the temple in which priests and people marched in, after which priests would pour out water and wine at the base of the altar. And it's in this context that Jesus says, all who are thirsty should come to me. All who believe in me should drink. As the scripture said concerning me, rivers of living water will flow out from within him, referring to Jesus. 
Jesus is standing amongst the people. Perhaps behind him, the priests are pouring out the water on the altar and Jesus is saying, hey, 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 I'm the guy. The, the water that you need, I have it. In fact, it is flowing out from within me. At the same festival where John is calling our attention to this, the same Jewish festival of booths or tabernacles, this harvest time celebration, there's also a, a ritual of candle lighting that takes place. Uh, Gail R. O'Day says the Mishnah, which is a, a collection of, of Jewish writings around 200 CE, uh, where they have some commentary on the law. It says, the mission describes the lighting of four large lampstands in the temple court of the women at the close of the first festival day. These lampstands produced so much light that there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that did not reflect the light of the Beit HaSheuva. Celebrants at tabernacles danced before those candlesticks with burning torches, adding even more light to their joyous celebration. And as this is happening, Jesus stands up and says, I and the light of the world. Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whenever John announces that there's a festival happening, there's, a, there's an implication where he's saying, and Jesus is the one who fulfills this festival, or the one who becomes the embodiment of this festival. There's a large lampstand, and Jesus off to the side says, cool, I'm the light of the world. There's water being poured out on the altar. He says, cool, I have living water within me. The Passover is in the mindset of people. He says, I am the bread. And so when we get to this passage where it says that before the festival of Passover, this is an important reading note because the author wants us to make some connections where Jesus will fulfill what is happening in this passage. Now, you guys wanna see something cool? Yes. You wanna see something real cool? Okay, now look at this. It's important because we can't just focus on the festival of the Passover because what John is saying is before this happens. Woo, you guys ready? Woo, okay. So in the synoptic gospels, what we have is a timeline that doesn't go along with the gospel of John. Hold on to that, it's gonna make sense in a moment. What we basically have to remember is when we're thinking about uh, Jewish culture, the day begins at sundown. And the day continues on through the next sunset on the following day. So when we talk about the day of preparation or the day before the Passover, it's from sundown this day to the following day, and then you eat the Passover meal on that evening after sundown and Passover continues into the next day, and then you go into the next day like that. This is not how we reckon time, but this is how a Jewish audience would understand time. Now look at this. In the Synoptic Gospels, when Jesus gathers his disciples in the room, in the upper room, you guys have seen that famous picture from Da Vinci, and they're all just sitting there at the Last Supper. For Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this takes place at the time of Passover. The meal that they're celebrating is the Passover meal. The lamb has been prepared, everything has been taken care of here at the day of preparation, and then at sunset they begin to feast at the Passover meal, which launches into the day of the crucifixion. So Jesus is crucified on the day of Passover. Now, in the book of John, what happens is everything moves back. And you say, so what? <laughs> Who cares? Why are we looking at this? But you will say, but I'll give it to you. That was a pretty cool transition. Yeah. That was a pretty cool slideshow. Yeah. 
Nice job, thank you. Okay, this is why this is important, because what John has done is, what John is saying, when we think about the Last Supper here on the day of preparation and coming into Jesus' crucifixion, the time when all of the animals were sacrificed is the time when Jesus is dying on the cross. John is shaping his gospel to tell a story where Jesus is the Passover. More than that, Jesus is the Passover lamb. We see this in chapter one when John the Baptist says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's this guy. And then John is unraveling this throughout his gospel, leaving little breadcrumbs along the way that most of us don't really pay attention to, but it's so beautiful and artistic, and the point is so filled with theological implications, and all he is saying is these festivals that keep coming up, Jesus fulfills them. It doesn't mean that he does away with them. It means that he becomes the living embodiment of what this means. He is the exodus, meaning he is freedom. He is released from slavery. He is life. He is bread. He is all of the things that the people were waiting for and wanting to see in their very eyes. I am the living water. I am the bread of life. I am the Passover. And N.T. Wright says, if we're gonna understand this story, we have to understand that this is the background to what's happening. Now, the next two points, because remember there's three. One, Jesus is the Passover. That Passover bit is really important. The next two, they go pretty quickly, okay? So we can relax. Jesus says, or the text says that Jesus knew that his time had come. All throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus is saying, my time's not here, my time's not here, my time's not here, which basically means the stuff that I've come to do Not yet. There's more for me to reveal. There's more miracles for me to do. There's more signs that need to take place. But we reached a point last week when everything turned and Jesus says, it's go time. He begins to realize that his time had come, not only to move towards crucifixion, but to reveal everything that God is wanting him to reveal to these people at this moment. Specifically, the text moves to to the third point. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them fully. There's a couple ways you can translate this from the Greek. He loved them to the end. He loved them to the very end of his life, to his dying breath. He loved his people, or he loved them fully, completely in a way that is is summarizing and encapsulating everything that love should be. And we see that not only in the death that he offers, but also in his beautiful servant act of washing feet. Now, I wanna show you a lot of Greek because I just like to throw it up on there in the screen just to keep us all honest. What do you only see one of in this passage? There's one period, we can all agree on that, right? So in this passage, there's, there's one train of thought that's happening here. This is important for us if we look at an English translation of this, which you could recognize before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world to go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, main verb, 
This is the point, and everything else describes this. The thing that everything hangs on is Jesus loving his people fully, completely, to the end, to the uttermost. And everything else is just description of what this means. Most English translations, side note, they break this up into two different sentences, which is fine, but you lose this beauty that John is working with here in this passage. Jesus loves his people, and we see that, and John is saying you will see that in the next few verses when Jesus gets down on his hands and knees and washes the feet of his disciples, and you will also see that when Jesus is also disrobed and hanging on a cross. I want to table that part of the story for a moment, because if we're honest, I think, and maybe this is a bad pastor confession, it's difficult for us to understand what is loving about the cross. It's difficult for us to understand as 21st century Americans that don't have crucifixion in the shadows of our everyday life, understanding what it is that Jesus has done It's important, and I know that for some of you, you're church people, so you could rattle off some stuff that you've learned, but if we were like in a a shared public space and we said, yeah, okay, but explain that to this person over here in, in words that they can understand, sometimes I think that there's a disconnect between the churchy stuff that we hold on to and how that actually lands with where we are in real life. I wanna hold on to to the love that Jesus um demonstrates for us in his beautiful act of self-sacrifice, and I wanna focus on something that's more tangible for us that we can hold on to in any culture. This is easy for us to make sense of. It says, so he got up from the table. Literally, it says that he got up from dinner. So this is in the middle of dinner, Jesus is getting up to wash the feet of the people that he's with. This is my symbol for washing Daniel's feet. It's creepy, isn't it? in the middle of the meal. This is not the time when this takes place. So we're, we're, we're focusing in on the significance of this. Jesus gets up from the table in the middle of the meal. He takes off his robes. He's picking up a linen towel. He ties it around his waist. Then he pours water into a wash basin and begins to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he was wearing. This uh, this verb here about drying with the towel, this, is, um, this brings us back to when Jesus is having his feet anointed and Mary is drying his feet with her hair. Just tuck that away. It's a weird connection here, and John is wanting us to see this act and Mary's act should be viewed together. Okay, take that for what it is. But he begins to wash the feet of his disciples mid-meal. He comes to Simon Peter, and Peter says to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? In the Greek, this is like, are you gonna wash my feet? I don't think so. That's not how this is gonna happen. You know, Peter, he's brash, right? He either does things really right or really loudly and wrongly. I'm looking at a friend or so uh, where I think we can identify maybe, you know, doing things loudly and usually rightly, but, you know, Scott and I coach youth soccer together. It's a U8 team. And, you know, sometime, from time to time, I should have texted you, but I don't think you care. You good? Nope. Good. There you go. Yeah. Um, from time to time, Scott gets pretty intense, and maybe a coffee cup has been thrown, or a ball has been punted, and the six-year-olds don't really know what's going on. I've taken it upon myself, it's my job just to be like, hey, oh, all right, hey, hold on. But like, 
Scott is a good representation of, of Peter in the sense of like there's moments when, let's leave Scott out of this for a second, but there's moments in Peter's life when he just like shows up and he gets it right. And there's moments when he just is, is real wrong, but he's brash nonetheless. And he's like, are you gonna wash my feet? The Greek makes this super clear because really it just says, Lord, you, my, you gonna wash the feet? <laughs> Which that, that doesn't really make sense in Greek, but this is like, there's some emphasis that's happening here. And Jesus says, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but you will later. And I kind of think that Jesus and Peter had this, had this bond where it's like, Bro, stop, relax, okay? And then Peter comes back again and says, no, you will never wash my feet. This is the strongest denunciation in the Greek language that can happen, where he's like, nope, never, not into the ages or into eternity, sort of. But he's like, this will never happen. Bro, relax, unless I wash you, you won't have a place with me. You won't have a part in the thing that I'm doing. And then Peter kind of backs off and says, Lord, well then, if that's the case, not just my feet, dump it all over me. He's probably stripping down, like, come on, Jesus. No, bro, no, come on, we've got stuff, stop it. There's this interchange here with Jesus and Simon Peter where he, he doesn't understand what's going on clearly. And Jesus responds again, those who have bathed need only to have, to have their feet washed because they are completely clean. There's sometimes when Jesus talks in the Gospel of John, you're like, what? I think this is one of them. Those who have bathed need only to have their feet washed because they are completely clean. I doubt Peter had any idea what he was saying. You disciples are clean, but not every one of you. Authorial um, edit here. He knew who would betray him, and that's why he said not every one of you at this table is clean. My main man, N.T. Wright, puts this into a real context for us. Washing your own feet is both very mundane because every day we wash our feet, right? Every day, we all wash our feet, of course. We do it so regularly that we hardly even think about it, but it's also very close and personal because this is where it gets weird, are you ready? Washing between someone else's toes is an intimate action. These are these moments when I'm just like sitting there and rise up reading my commentaries, and I'm reading like this 75-year-old British man talking about like squeaking in between somebody's toes. You're like, ugh. That's it's a moment of tenderness. Thank you, N.T. Wright. Yes, absolutely, it is. But he brings to the fore, uh, sort of in our own context, what we might think about washing someone else's feet, uh, and we maybe miss that in its context, this is an act of hospitality. Because you're walking probably in sandals, because the roads are not paved and beautiful like our own, because there's no sidewalks, your feet are gonna get dirty. So when you go into a house, sometimes there's a basin there where you can wash your own feet. Sometimes if you're in a really ritzy house, there might be a servant who shows up to wash the feet of whoever comes in, whether it's yours or your guests. What it never is, is the master of the house. And all the Broadway people say, master of the house. Okay, that was, a, that was a side note for the three of you that appreciate that. Uh, and me, I guess. I don't know how I fit into that. But anyway, like, this is not something that the teacher, the master, 
the important person. This is not something that they do, yet Jesus is doing it. This is a, a, a servant's act. Just pause there for a second. In our context, like I, I don't know quite what those servant acts might be, but I do know that we probably don't like doing them. And the example that we have of Jesus is one who quite literally is not afraid to get his hands dirty and squeak in between people's toes. <laughs> Gross, sorry, okay. Here, this also shows the love of God that Jesus is becoming an embodiment of who God is. The things that Jesus does, it demonstrates who God is. God is a servant in the sense that I don't think this is out of place, but he wants our needs to be taken care of. He wants us to experience the simple acts of hospitality that are not too far beyond his pay grade. And Jesus, in the act of stripping down and washing the feet of his disciples, is a clear demonstration of this. While I might be the only weird one in the room or the only person honest enough to say it, the cross at times is hard to wrap our brains around what he's doing. This isn't the dirty, gross feet that we bring into the room he's not afraid to wash so that we can be a part of what he's doing. And I want to focus on something. We haven't read this yet, but in the next verse it says, and after he washed the disciples' feet. Who's in the room? You got Peter being loud and ridiculous. You got the other disciples that really don't play a big role in, in the book. We don't know a whole lot about them. You know, there's 12, but most of them remain nameless in, in John's account. But we are introduced in the very early verses of this whole story that there's Judas, who has this weird relationship with the devil. And Jesus even says, not all of you are clean. But he doesn't go around Judas to get to number 12. He bends down and washes the feet. I have a soft spot in my heart for Judas because the things that were enticing to him probably are the things that are enticing to us. Not just money, but comfortability, certainty, the things that we think that we know and how we've got this rogue, homeless Jewish rabbi over here doing really weird stuff that we don't know how to understand. And I don't know what transpires in both Jesus's mind or in Judas's mind in that moment. I've only been part of one foot washing ceremony it was really weird because it's not something that we do. But there is a bond that takes place and things that were not communicated verbally that were communicated non-verbally. All of the things that I had done wrong to this person, just going with the dirt and the muck of the basin as you're washing the feet or even worse, as you're receiving the washing of your own feet. 
And I'm not sure, like in this moment, the Jewish, uh, the, the Jesus and the Judas moment, what that may have, have looked like, but I think that there's a lesson there for us. It says, after he washed the disciples' feet, he put on his robes and returned to his place at the table. He said to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher, you call me Lord, and you speak correctly because I am, but if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you too must wash each other's feet. I have given you an example, just as I have done, you also must do. Jesus does these things, right? these signs that have a symbolism behind them. And the reason why I think that there's some, some providence to this particular story is because as we think about, you too must wash each other's feet. On a night when we're here to vote and hopefully affirm Susie in this role of pastor, it's clear to me that Susie, in this, in this transition from leader, elder into pastor, this call is very true for you as it is true for me, that we must be the people who are about washing the feet both of this community and the community around. Because really what it comes down to is people have been burned and hurt by the church. And a lot of times that has been because of the pride and the arrogance of the leadership to put distance between the people and the folks up here with the microphones. But if we actually paid attention to what Jesus is doing, the only thing that we would do is submit and serve in real and tangible ways that communicate love and acceptance and inclusivity into this membership in the family of God. Now, for the rest of you sitting here, it's really easy for us to say like, yep, that's what the pastors do. And some churches even have these moments where it's like, well, it's Monday, Thursday, which is the Thursday before um, Good Friday. And just like Jesus washed the feet, now the leadership will wash your feet. So you come on up, come on up in, a, in a row and we'll dump, dump you in the basin and we'll wash the feet. And there's like this, maybe not intentional, but there's this arrogance because now we're not the servants, we're the leaders. We're the powerful people who have the distinct privilege of washing people's feet. And you guys line up and we'll just dunk you. You see what I'm saying? There's this like, it's this weird paradox where it's, we're being the servants, but we want you to see how we're serving you in a service where we'll be up on stage serving you. <laughs> Which is why when, when we see this, it's not just for Susie. It's not just for me. It's for every single person in this room. I would even say, forgive me, Lord, if I'm wrong, I think it's for every person, regardless of whether or not they're following Jesus. This is a beautiful, sacrificial, loving way to live and to treat your neighbor with whatever adjective you would like to place before your neighbor to be a person who lays down our agenda, our pride, our status, our, our want for image and power, lays that down and gets in between the toes of the people. There's something within me where if it gets too serious, I've got to throw in some bad humor, so whatever. Toes. I hope that when we hear this line, 
And in the things that we're about to see in the next few moments, that we don't just section this off to certain people, but we begin to see that not only has Jesus washed us, not only have we experienced that, but we too are called to be the people that go out and wash other people's feet, to take on the role of the servant, to become the lowest of the low for the sake of the betterment of this world and the meaningful and poignant image of the Most High God that is worked out with a basin and a towel. I hope that we're able to take that and go with it. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.